Welcome back to Real Voices of the Game. I'm Dave D'Agostino, and I'm joined here today by our host and star of this show, Jim Cott, the Hall of Famer. This is Cott's Corner, episode 422 on our network. That was a little Led Zeppelin lean in. The song remains the same. I have to thank Jim Colonel of the Arms Race, a friend of ours and a, a host on our network here. He thought that would be a great theme for our week with all the information we give our audience and you know how we keep on hammering the same thing, just different angles. And we are making a dent in the game, I believe, but he thought that was a an appropriate song for the research he's doing anyway. The song remains the same. But I um, want to thank uh, our one of our sponsors here, Jaw Bats, uh, newest bat certified by Major League Baseball. Our 64,000 subscribers, you're privy to use our code RVG at checkout. All of our hosts will have their own codes by the end of the week, so you can support their individual podcasts. But Great Maple Bats, they have other apparel there as well that you can get, but Tanner's using the the uh, 33-inch model right now, the M110, so the, the big guy's getting a little stronger there. He loves it from both the righty and lefty side, and we saw Jeff Fry using one down in spring training, I guess fantasy camp this week with the Red Sox, had a double in his first at-bat using the jaw bat, so it's working out there. Thank you to Sports Podcast Group and the Webbies. I believe it's pronounced the Webbies. We've been, we've been honored with being nominated for podcast, baseball podcasts of the year, so um, hopefully we do well in both those on both those votes. So sports podcast group and the Webbies. Thanks to our new marketing partner, Millions. Uh, they're going to be getting our name and uh, our all of our information out there for us on social media from here on forward. And uh, they're engaging with several potential marketing partners for us. So we're excited to have them on board to do that portion of our work. And uh, today, again, part of a triple header Wednesday, we started off with the Hall of Famer, Kevin Kernan. Obviously, we have the Hall of Famer, Jim Cott, in the middle here, and we'll We'll finish up with Nomar Garcia Pera this afternoon. So great, great uh, lineup today. And uh, we've got a lot in store for him today, Jim. Hall of Fame boat just came in last night. Uh, so wel- welcome back to your show. Well, thank you. It's good to be back. And particularly on this day, uh, which is such an exciting day for baseball people, fans, players, former players, uh, not to uh, denigrate the other halls of fame, but there's something so unique about the Baseball Hall of Fame, the attention it gathers and, you know, the why didn't he get in, how come he got in, things like that. It's uh, it's unique in, in many, many ways. And, of course, I'm so happy for Joe Maurer being, uh, being a former twin. And I knew that he had an outside chance of getting in on the first ballot, but to temper the enthusiasm of all the Minnesota people, I said, remember, Yogi Berra didn't get in on the first ballot. Yeah. And that's shocking. You know, <laughs> one of the greatest catchers of all time. But Joe DiMaggio, I, I think three, it took Joe DiMaggio three, three times, if I remember yeah. right. When I look at the three inductees, uh, Adrian Beltre, Todd Helton, and now Joe, and then I look at last year when I got to uh, spend a lot of time with Scott Rowland and Fred McGriff. Uh, you parents, youth coaches, big league players, whoever you are, those five guys are as good a models on and off the field for baseball as we could possibly get. They're all humble. They all appreciate, you know, how they got to where they are and uh, they give credit to other people. And I just think it's so classy that uh, during the my two by two post years, that I'm able to rub shoulders with those five guys that have been uh, inducted, Fred and Scott last year, and now, of course, looking forward to uh, 
to being there in July for Adrian and uh, Todd, whose dad actually uh, played in the Twins organization briefly. And then Joe, who, uh, I mean, there couldn't be a better story for a Hall of Famer going to high school in the Twin City area in St. Paul and then, you know, playing there for his entire career, which uh, he and Todd Helton did. And that's so unusual in uh, in today's game. So exciting class and always exciting to to be a part of uh, and, and to be able now to participate in that Hall of Fame induction week. Yeah, no, and, and well-deserved. I I loved and I loved the I loved all the guys that got in, but one thing that stuck out stood out to me for Helton and Maurer, and I did hear that Beltre was also a multi-sport athlete coming up playing football. But you look at Joe Maurer, I mean, he could have signed at Florida State as a quarterback at a high school. Uh, he was also an accomplished basketball player. Gosh, he's about six four. Um, went the baseball route, and you know, to tremendous career. Todd Helton was. Uh, an All-American high school quarterback coming out, and obviously T- Peyton Manning's back up at Tennessee at quarterback. So it's exciting to see in this world of specialization, multi-sport athletes uh, uh, being held out there. Uh, in yeah, a- that's 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 a good point. Th- same thing when I mentioned Scott Rowland last year. I think he was like Mr. Indiana basketball or something. Yeah. He, he also was my – and, uh, you know, it speaks to the fact that uh, the specialization today – is more harmful than helpful uh, in that it, it has prevented a lot of the names that you just mentioned from playing multiple sports. So on one hand, we have doctors and and everybody that knows what they're talking about saying kids play all sports. And then on the flip side, you have parents and coaches saying, well, if you want to be a baseball player, you, you got to take hitting lessons when you're eight years old or something. And, you know, it's it's okay uh, to try to, you know, to try to be accomplished at one sport, but while you're doing that, play the others as well. I, yeah, I agree. It's there, there's a, there's a phrase it's called open and closed skills. And when you close yourself off to just learning the specific skill for a sport, now baseball could be a little bit different in ways, but you, you prevent yourself from becoming overall, uh, overall athletic. You, you, you limit your athleticism overall. And I think that prevents you from, if these people really want to go as high as they want to go, then they're they're barking up the wrong tree. Uh, they're 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 yeah, really. I, I think in, in looking at you know I I, I got some um, awards for fielding as a pitcher, and uh, I think one of the reasons is because for my size uh, I had some quickness, and I really think that my interest in basketball you know basketball was a lot more enjoyable to play and to practice as a youngster. Baseball can be quite boring, you know, the practice of it uh, before the game, so forth. But basketball keeps you active. And I think, uh, you know, playing outdoor basketball in the in the driveway from the time I was 9 or 10, and, and I think all those basketball skills uh, helped me really as a, as a pitcher to feel my position. Yeah, and you probably remember the, the great Pete Newell, uh, back in, uh, he was Bobby Knight's mentor. Yeah. He, he, uh, used to really harp on kids that, you know, they spend so much time learning to dribble a basketball. And at the very most, even if you're dominant, the ball's in your hand, maybe five to 8% of the time of the game, but you're on your feet a hundred percent of the game. And I, when you said that about your, your fielding prowess, I was going to mention, yeah, you, your, you, your feet always put you in a position to field the ball properly. And that yeah. in any sport is, is where it's at. So what, um, 
you mentioned to me in the pre-show notes, Tyler Kepner, I believe, um, in the, and I don't want to spoil the punchline, but in uh, his in war, we we talk about war all the time, especially with the Hall of Fame. What were what was your what was your take on that? Or what were you? Yeah, I was glad. You know, I have great respect for Tyler anyway, and know him well, and he's a talented writer. And uh, but I, I hear some of the experienced writers talking a lot about war wins above replacement. I mean, I've been following the game for a long time, and and I even talk to general managers that are confused about what it really is. And uh, when you look at particularly the short relievers, the closers, they they get kind of cast aside. They don't have real high war numbers. But uh, I was glad that Tyler threw that out instead of using war uh, as a comparison. And I think that's where the the, the members of the Writers Association that have the right to vote, but they may not be really what you would call traditional baseball writers, that's all they have to go on is those stats that are, are defined by an acronym. And uh, I think, uh, for I'll give you an example, one person, I know who it is, I won't mention his name, he has a cohort also that has written several uh, books that... Uh, you know, they talk about all the numbers in baseball. They never played. One in particular, one of the two, uh, was denied the right to vote because he didn't see enough games. But here's a person who voted for a player who was suspended for an entire year, uh, guilty of PEDs twice, so you'll know who I'm talking about, and didn't vote for Joe Maurer. So, you know, I think you have that and I've talked to some of the seasoned writers about this, not that the other uh, writers around the country, they follow the game, but I really think uh, it takes the Jason Starks and the Joel Shermans who we saw last night, Peter Gammons, guys who have lived the game and been in that press box for thousands of games. Those are the ones really qualified to vote. Uh, I think that's why I really, uh, though it took a long time, appreciated the uh, the support I got in the Veterans Committee because they were all either players, executives, or writers who uh, knew my career and Tony Oliva's career up close and personal. Yeah, and uh, and I think that's what hurts uh, some of the players, you know. And we could talk for the whole hour about why didn't Billy Wagner get in? Well, if Billy got in, then we'd be saying, well, then Joe Namath belong or Joe uh, Nathan belongs in as well. So those are the kind of conversations that are fun to have uh, regarding the baseball hall of fame. You know, it's, it's such a talked about uh, award. And uh, for as long as I've been following the game professionally, I still, don't understand or can't give a good reason why when a player's career is over, he's never going to play again. So he's either a hall of famer or he's not. (laughs) But uh, fortunately we have the veterans committee, which I benefited from, but it's still kind of a head scratcher for me to see how, okay, now Billy missed by five votes. So that means he's going to get in next year. Well, uh, you know, why wouldn't he just get in this year? I mean, there's probably seven of them that, deserve to be in and they will all be in eventually but there is something where uh, I'll use the example of my teammate the late great Harmon Killebrew uh, who took I believe four ballots to get in four years 
So uh, his career uh, ended in the mid seventies and I got traded to the Phillies and Alan, Alan Lewis, who was a well-respected writer in Philadelphia said, well, I'm not voting for your guy the first year. I said, well, what do you want me to do about it? And so I said, well, I'll tell you why. I didn't ask him why. And he said, all he did was hit home runs. I said, yeah, he hit 573 of them. And he hit a lot of them in clutch situations, but you were in the National League, so you never saw him play. Yeah. And uh, so that's the kind of thing. There are some that just, uh, you know, they are not going to vote for very few. Now that's changing. You saw Beltre get 95% of the vote. I think with the with the comparisons and uh, Jason Stark and, and Joel Sherman were, were talking about them last night, they take the time to go in and compare what they've done to other players of that position in the past. And I don't know that every writer does that. You know, it was interesting to hear how Beltre, you could make a case for he's the greatest third baseman ever. When you look at his hits, his home runs, his gold gloves, and he really – from age 30 on is when he became a Hall of Famer. The early part of his career, just the opposite of, of Joe Maurer, uh, was completely different. So uh, I, I think that the uh, the writers that take the time to go into the history and compare, uh, I know I won't mention the, uh, the names, but I know there was a lot of people on the committee uh, in 2022, which I benefited from, that use different pitchers that are in the Hall of Fame to compare. And uh, that's the kind of that's the kind of hard work it takes to really be a legitimate voter. Yeah, it's a, it's an honor. It's a responsibility. And there's only 385 people to vote. Now, do you get a vote as a Hall of Famer? No, I, I don't. I, I think I will. I, I'm looking forward. I think in next year, uh, uh, Josh Rawich, who's the president of the Hall of Fame, has asked me about being on what they call an era committee. Oh yeah, uh, and I think coming up would be uh, would be Tommy John, and I think that Dale Murphy. You know, there, there's a there's a name. He, he Murph doesn't get the kind of support that he should when you look at the at the career he had. And I got it. You know, I got a chance to face him and see him and know what a what a dominant player he was. Uh, he came up Joel as a catcher. Sherman too. last night, writer for the New York Post, a longtime baseball writer, uh, used the term star and co-star. And so some players are co-stars. They weren't the megastar, but Dale Murphy was a star, a two-time MVP, 400 home runs. Yeah. Uh, did a lot for that Braves franchise. And uh, so there, there's a guy that uh, if I'm on an era committee, I would at least present my thoughts on why I think Murph should be in the Hall of Fame. And, and of course, TJ, Tommy John, that's a no-brainer. He, uh, uh, and I told TJ, we both talked about that, he really deserved to be in before me. He, he, he has a couple of components that he could be in. On one is performance, but second, there is a surgery called after him, for God's sake. That's, that's yeah. it. <laughs> yeah, a lot of people think he's, I tell him, I said, TJ, a lot of people think you're a doctor. His, son, <laughs> his, his son's a doctor. Nobody correct? ever mentions Frank Job. That's right. Is his is his yeah. son a doctor? T- Tommy's son. I believe I believe one of his sons is. Yeah, yeah I think he is too. Ah. I do. Sorry, I didn't mean to digress. It just uh, it, it caught a point. Um, no, and that I think, and as much as I don't like war either, because it's opaque. Uh, people don't. They can't put a finger on what the heck it means. 
and it's really influencing a lot of people's opinions on players. I think it's an attempt to try to compare across eras. Um, I don't know if you can arguably do that, but yeah, I, when you mentioned that about Beltre, his votes, maybe only George Brett as, as a third baseman got higher first ballot votes than yeah. Beltre, even yeah. like Mike Schmidt. We talk about Brooks Robinson. I mean, those are right. pretty good players. And yeah. uh, I, you know, you don't think of Beltre off the top of your head. Maybe I should. When you say, who's the greatest third baseman of all time? Um, yeah, you know, he, but, he came on late, you know, the, uh, the Red Sox had him for a year, and I bet they wish they kept him for a couple more years. But, yeah. So, uh, yeah, he 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 uh, became a Hall of Famer and really put the stamp on his career those those last I think seven or eight years with the Rangers. Now, going back to war for a minute, if if people want to know why I am so anti-war, no pun intended, with what's going on in our world, but. Uh, Supposedly, and I'll use myself as an example, I, when I had a few bad starts in a row, and obviously that happened frequently, where you'd have some bad starts and you say, well, I got to get back on track. So I would say to our manager, Sam Mealy, I said, if we have a blowout game today, instead of throwing on the, on the side what guys today would call a bullpen, uh, I'd like to get in the game and, and, and pitch a couple innings, see if I can figure something out. Well, I remember I did that against the White Sox back in the 60s, and I, I think in an inning and two-thirds, I gave up like six runs, three home runs. Uh, but I was just, you know, we were getting beat like 12 to 1 anyway, so who cared? So I asked Kenny Rosenthal, a well-respected writer, does that hurt my war? And yes, it does. It goes against my war rating. So in today's game, that would never happen, and an agent wouldn't let his player do that. Yeah. Uh, so that's why I think it's it's such a phony statistic, and I don't I just don't put much stock in it when it comes to valuing players. Yeah, I, I agree with you because they're more aware they're more aware of it now. So there there's always ways to manipulate numbers uh, to make it prove your point, and in the case of an agent, to make more dollars and cents if they know that's how their pitcher is being judged by it. And you know, we we you were going to talk about the current state of pitching. You know, we're seeing 140 innings being the norm. You're your time of throwing 300 innings uh, is is dead and gone. And 140 innings, you had that before the All-Star break. Yeah, you know, as, as much as they've dumbed down pitching over the past, I don't know, say decade, they're, they're continuing to pile on with dumbing down. I mean, now they're giving guys contracts where if they pitch 140 innings, this big bonus kicks in. So I was just, you know, without – taking shots at these guys, but I, I was, the Dodgers, I think are about to sign James Paxton. Maybe he's pitched in 10 years. He's pitched 850 innings. He started 64, 156 games. He's 35 years old. Uh, if the Dodgers sign him to a reasonable contract, he will in his career have earned, he's going to earn over $50 million. Mickey Lolich pitched over 900 innings covering three seasons. <laughs> so they're paying so much money now for these starting pitchers that are only going to pitch four or five innings. So I, I don't get it. I mean, I respect the fact that they're, they're in a position they earn, these general managers earn that because of their knowledge of baseball. But uh, when are they going to realize that you need – the pitchers at the end of the game more than you need the starters these days. 
years ago. You know, starting was a glamorous position, uh, coveted position, four-man rotation. If you had one of those starts, it was like having a seat on the New York Stock Exchange. And now you're just the guy that starts and goes through the batting order, you know, twice and takes a shower and gets his pom-poms out and makes $25 million a year. It doesn't make sense. With less than half a day's work. Yeah. I, 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 I don't have a seat in the room, so I can't pretend to know what's being talked about. But logically, and I think that's what gets probably me in trouble more than anything else, and uh, these, these pitchers are pitching less. I would have to imagine that the point you're making where the, the middle of the game and the end of the game is becoming more of a priority, that the market financially would correct itself because these guys may not be baseball people. Some of them are, but they're at least financial people and they know numbers according to them that that knowledge, that background would force the market to correct itself where unless you're a Garrett Cole, who's to me probably the only bell cow right now in Major League Baseball that is is like the the uh, the pitchers of your era where he's going to put his head down and go 200 regardless, that the market's going to correct itself and pitchers are going to price themselves out, starters anyway, of the big salaries, and maybe that money goes to the middle in the end, guys, more. Yeah, you would think so. I mean, Garrett Cole, when, when we talked to our friend Jim Colonel uh, about who's done so much research on on the uh, the kinetic motion, you know, the mechanics and the pitching motion and what the majority pitchers, their motion is, it's almost an accident waiting to happen. Uh, Garrett Cole is the one that probably has in today's game closest to the most efficient and fundamentally correct pitching motion. And that's no surprise when you look at what he's done. I mean, the, uh, the three, the three gold standards that we use, and I got this from Jim, when you look at the motions of Fergie Jenkins, Steve Carlton, Nolan Ryan, uh, more than 15,000 innings between them, no, no uh, time on the AL, no uh, arm surgeries or anything because they had those fundamental motions. So not only are these pitchers only pitching a half a game, but most of them uh, are going to break down anyway. Otani's already had two surgeries. And uh, when you look at the motions that they're using, pretty good chance that they might have a five-year deal for X amount of money, but they're going to break down within that five years using the kind of motion they are right now. And, And that's because the, the uh, the thing that organizations are stressing is chasing that velocity. Yeah. And they start chasing the velocity when they're too young, and eventually they end up with an injured arm or on the operating table. And it's just that vicious cycle or circle that they're not teaching anybody how to pitch as an art. They just, you know, can I go to driveline and pick up five miles an hour more? Uh, yep. And that's just that's just the wrong thing about pitching. That's the wrong approach. You know, you you've you've talked before about Major League Baseball maybe having a moment of clarity where they 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 want to find out why they can't have that marquee matchup anymore. Going back to the days of you know Carlton, Fergie Jenkins, Nolan Ryan, where they you can count on them to to you know take the post every fourth day, yeah. uh, and they're not going to be on the DL. Again, logically, I'm going to get myself in trouble here by thinking logically, uh, but I know we're in this together. Why would we not, as an industry, start looking to the past in those guys to start getting back to baseball where a guy could take the post? If that's what they want, I mean, the answer is right in front of their face. 
Yeah, I mean, it starts right up there. I used to say Park Avenue, but now they're only on, they're over on 6th Avenue, the commissioner's office. But they, the appeal of the game, uh, the commissioner himself will tell you he would, he would like to see more marquee starting pitcher matchups. Uh, he went to his first game at Yankee Stadium in 1968 as a young kid. I remember going to mine in 1946, and, you know, the appeal was seeing Hal Neuhauser, who was a two-time MVP back in the in the 40s. But you looked in the paper and say, oh, Scherzer's pitching against Kershaw today when, when Clayton was healthy. But we don't have that kind of appeal anymore because the starter – you're just rooting for the uniform and you, you root for the outcome, hope your team wins, but there's no, there's no excitement about saying, let's go see. I think the last one I did that was exciting was 12 years ago when I saw Tim Lincecum and Pedro Martinez hook up when Pedro was with the Phillies. And I really looked forward to that game because uh, uh, I knew these two guys were, you know, they weren't throwers, they were pitchers. And uh, that's, that's fun to watch. I wish we could get more of it. Yeah, well, you would think, you you would think with all the so right now we have two to three pitching coaches at every level. I would imagine the offices are filled with you know marketing people, even analytics people to tell marketing that with all those pitching people and all those marketing people around that they could figure out a way to get that star on the field, keep them healthy, and then they could charge ten times the ticket price if they could count on a guy starting every fourth day because people could you know buy that ticket in advance. And I I want to see. Garrett Cole. I want to see, you know, whoever Blake Snell, if he becomes that bell cow. So, yeah. Uh, well, you know, when, when uh, lefty, when Steve Carlton had that fantastic year in uh, 71, they would, he was 27 and 72, I believe it was the, the Phillies won like 58 games. That was a strike shortened season. We only played 154. Uh, and, and lefty won almost half the games. 27 and 10 ERA in the high ones, I think 30 complete games, something like that. And they used to hold up the start of the game for the fans to get in. And then fast forward into the 80s, I was still an active player when Fernando Mania came along. And when Fernando Valenzuela was pitching for the Dodgers at home or on the road, people came out to see that. And uh, we've we've got the talent with some of the starting pitchers, but uh, we, we don't, they're not using them properly. So we don't get to see them hook up late in the game and see who's going to be able to get those last six outs or eight outs. Uh, granted, if you have a Mariano in the bullpen, you're not going to have to pitch in ninth inning, but it'd be nice to see him at least go eight head to head. Oh yeah. That's a, used to be a badge of courage. We, we chatted a little bit about the, the Red Sox uh, new front office move uh, with new, new general manager. I think he was a, uh, did he play for your friend, John Stuper over at Yale? Yeah, he was, uh, Craig was a, you know, a highly intelligent guy. I remember when John, uh, who I believe you're going to talk to on your, on your show. Uh, John called me one, one day and said, I have little Koufax on my staff because Craig Breslow is Jewish. Yes. Sandy Koufax is Jewish. And Craig was a left-hander who, had a nice live arm. So, yeah, he pitched at Yale for, uh, I think, at least three years for John. And, uh, you know, he's hoping to be able to bring his expertise and his uh, judgment of talent to the Red Sox and improve, improve their pitching staff. Now, 
they haven't added any pitchers, but I, uh, they seem to be confident with the ones they have. We'll, uh, I know Red Sox fans are not too optimistic about it, but uh, we'll see. I, I, I hope he does well for his own sake. Yeah, they, they uh, traded Chris Sale, I believe. What, what did you make on that? I know Sale hasn't been healthy. When he was healthy, he was. Yeah, I think the I think the history says for the money uh, that they're they're paying him, and you know he had such a great uh, he had such a great run there. But if you looked at Chris's motion, and I'm sure Jim Colonel could break it down, is that you know tall and thin, he wasn't particularly strong like a like a Roger Clemens or Madison Bumgarner, and it, it just looked like that motion was conducive to something going wrong and it did so i think the red sox just said hey we have a a chance to get this outstanding young uh, infielder vaughn grissom and uh, they're going to turn their pitching over to uh some uh you know lower salaried but still good potential uh pitchers brian bellow i know they have a lot of confidence in him and it'll be a good deal for chris because uh I don't think the Braves are expecting to get 18, 20 wins out of him, but if they do, that's a pleasant surprise. But they think he'll be a solid addition, and he should be. Uh, he's, he's such a, an accountable player. Uh, you have to respect the, the fact that he just uh, he will never blame anybody else but himself. So I, I think whatever they get in Atlanta, they're going to be happy with what they get from Chris Sale. Yeah, he'll be able to influence. They have a great young pitching staff. Even guys like, you know, Ian Anderson was out this past year uh, with with arm troubles, but such a great young staff. He'll be he'll be a positive influence in the locker room, I would believe. And then whatever they get out of him on the field will be be bonus. What I, I and I love the Grissom one uh, Grissom signing. He was supposed to be the Braves' starting shortstop last year when Dansby Swanson. Uh, left town for Chicago, and they opted with Arcia, I believe. We ended up making the All-Star game, but I loved Grissom the year before. He filled in for Albies and Swanson, and I think he's going to be a very good Major League shortstop for Boston. Yeah, I think they're uh, – I believe uh, Trevor Story is going to go over to second base. They and could, yeah, or vice versa, depending on – Vice versa, yeah. Are they going to make Grissom the second baseman? Could be, yeah. yeah. I, I don't know that they've gone – going out, but I'm sure Story will get his, uh, being the veteran, he'll probably uh, seek his counsel and what he's yeah. comfortable doing, but oh, yeah. good player needs to stay healthy. Now, what about the Yanks? I think baseball is always more exciting when the Yankees and Red Sox are good. They made uh, a move early with Soto, but they, they haven't really signed a lot of pitching. Marcus Stroman's their latest signee. Yeah, I was I was surprised at that. Of course, I these players make comments sometime, and that's that's what stands out. I said, I started identifying them with their comments. It's kind of like when Deion Sanders did that cowardice act of throwing a bucket of water over Tim McCarver while he was wired up to do a TV interview and then went and hid someplace that Timmy couldn't find him. So when Keith Hernandez was approached about uh, giving Otani his number 17, which the Mets retired, he didn't make a definitive statement uh, about it kind of took him off guard, but uh you know, Stroman, Stroman spoke out and, you know, this old dinosaur, you know, he's getting tired of guys like that. Well, you know, first of all, Otani wouldn't have asked for Keith's number. Uh, but secondly, uh, Marcus might want to uh, thank Keith because he just signed that $37 million contract for a guy who hasn't pitched a lot of innings in the last five, six years. And it was Keith, along with a lot of us, that uh, 
that dug our feet in and enabled these guys to make that kind of money. So it, it always annoys me when I see a current player uh, throw criticism at somebody that helped them get where they're at. Yeah, that's so a great I mean, And the other thing, he's been with four different teams now. This would be his fourth team in four years. And when I read his comment, I really liked him when he came up with the Blue Jays. He's, he's exciting, flamboyant. Uh, and like he said, I, I like the big stage. I like the bright lights. Well, okay, but I want a player that will say, I'm here for the greater good of the team. What can I do to help this team win a World Series? And I never heard anything like that come out of his mouth. It was all about uh, how excited he is about the, the bright lights. And there might be a reason why he's now been with four different uh, teams, because the teams he was with did not make any strong effort to re-sign him. Yeah, that, that lends so itself. I think with the, with the judge and Stanton and stability there, uh, with the Yankees, those two guys that uh, – Maybe they could get more out of them because you're right. When the when the Yankees and the Red Sox are uh, are going at each other and are both playing well, it's good for the whole industry. Yeah, I, I agree with you totally on that. Now on the on the flip side of the battery, there the Yankee catching. You know they're going to have some young guys back there, but boy, the when you look, you mentioned Yogi early on in the show, and it made me think of the lineage of catching they had from Yogi to Elston to Thurman to. Joe Girardi to Posada. Um, yeah. We haven't you seen know, it. Catching, catching, like Casey Stingle said, as great as Mickey was, um, if he had to pick one player to start his team when they had those great teams back in the early 60s, the teams that I broke in against, Yogi would be his number one pick. So in those days, the names you mentioned, they, they were like the leaders on the field. Uh, Yogi, Elston. And then uh, Girardi came along. Uh, he groomed Jorge Posada. Now, there are some exceptions, like maybe Real Muto with the Phillies, but the catcher's just a guy that looks at his pitch com and he takes advice whatever the propeller heads told him before the game. They've, they've kind of lost that, that mantle they had to wear as a leader on the team that the Yankees had for years. So, um, yeah, that, that – uh, that position has lost a lot of prestige with the, with the Yankees over the last few years. And in general, I mean, across the industry, as you mentioned, there's uh, catching to me and I was a second baseman. I was a wannabe catcher. My dad wouldn't let me catch because I was small in stature and he thought I had a better shot of moving on in the game as a second baseman. And he was right. Um, my son Tanner catches and, and he, he does a, does a real good job, but the way that I've introduced catching to him is catching's a way of life. It's like being a point guard in basketball, a a, a quarterback in base in a football, I should say. And uh, I don't see that as much anymore. And I don't want to take away from what guys are doing, but as you said, it's catching is it's almost literal now. You catch it. You read the yeah. card. You catch it. Well, you know, I uh, and and I've I mentioned this to Johnny. You know, as a compliment, really, is that Johnny Bench uh, changed the the role of a catcher. Uh, Yogi, Yogi stood out. He was an offensive catcher as well, but you know, Yogi, because of his appearance and his personality and stuff, you just thought, well, he's Yogi. You didn't put him up on a Mount Rushmore where he belongs, but along came Johnny Bench and he became an offensive catcher first and a catcher second. And then it became an offensive position. So along came Fisk and along came Gary Carter. And now they're looking at what a, a catcher can do with the bat. 
Uh, whereas when I first came up, the White Sox, when they won the pennant, they had Sherm Lawler. Uh, you know, we had Earl Batty, who was a decent hitter. But in those days, you were a catcher first, good defensive catcher, uh, got the trust of the pitchers, knew each of his pitchers. Uh, now that seems to be secondary because it's all handled uh, by the science and uh, the catcher's just there to punch the, uh, the pitch com button. Yeah. You, uh, you had a special story with, with Yogi, did you not? One, uh, early on in your career? Yeah, you know, it was, I was like a 16-year-old kid still, so in awe of uh, the last time they had two All-Star games was in 1962. And I got named to the second team in 1962nd game. Did that for the benefit of the pension plan. So my first All-Star game was Yogi's last. Oh wow! So, so I was on the I was on I didn't do anything that day, but but dress out and watch the watch the guys play in the American League one. But uh, yeah, so I was on the same All Star team. Uh, Yogi's last game, my my first All Star game. Now, were you on his team or were you on the opposing team? No, I was on his team. Oh no! Yeah. You, could, you could have thrown to him if you got out there. Yeah. No such luck. No, I think in those days. Uh, we, we squeezed that game in. You know, you flew in one day. There weren't any home run derby. There weren't any banquets, anything like that. You showed up at the park. You dressed. You played the game, got on the plane, and went to play wherever your team was playing next. It was just, oh, by the way, here's the second All-Star game. Yeah, no, that's uh, – I, I didn't know that about that until you, you had introduced that to me in the show notes. That there were two All-Star games. Now it's hard enough to get guys to play one. They want to take a break. Yeah. So with, um, you know, with, with pitching, you obviously, you were, you were an innings eater. You, you, you never shirked away from a, from a start or going deeper into games or even, as you said, instead of taking a side day, get back on the hill and get your side day on the, in live action. Lucas Giolito is being dubbed as an innings eater, um, right now. And, you know, you, you've got some other, other thoughts on that. Well, that's how that's how pitching has been dumbed down. I mean, in no disrespect to Lucas, when I saw him, he pitched a shutout against the Twins a few years ago, and I liked the way the ball came out of his hand. Uh, you know, I didn't analyze his motion like Jim Colonel can, but I thought, man, this guy's got to be a Cy Young candidate. Uh, he really looked like he was going to be a dominant pitcher when you know the White Sox got him from the Nationals, and he. Uh, he hasn't pitched back to that because of injuries. Uh, and again, probably because the motion caused injuries, but uh, you know, they're looking at him at him as an innings eater and they, and the standard is 180 innings, you know? Yeah. So that's how, that's how pitching has been dumbed down. And uh, you know, the goal used to be when spring training, they'd say, well, do you have any goals this year? Well, my goal was always to start 40 games and pitch 280 innings. Because that meant that you were going to average seven innings a start. And if you got 40 starts, that meant your manager had confidence in you that you were the guy he wanted out there every four days. Now, I didn't always reach that goal. I, I did it a few times. But now, if you if I was playing today and, and operated as a pitcher the way they are today, and they say, what are your goals? Well, I, I hope I can get to 30 starts and maybe 175 to 180 innings. You know, I can't relate to that, but that's that's kind of the difference in then and now. 
if we took your innings and we spread them out like they do with guys nowadays, and again, it's we're, we'd be doing it with math, so they started the math issue, so we can certainly piggyback it. You could have probably pitched well into your late sixties, early seventies. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, it's, it's not the it's not the pitcher's fault. So this is not really a knock at the pitchers. This is the system. Yeah. And why does the system? You know, we weren't chasing velocity. We we wanted to pitch. This, you know, the slogan. If you say, "Hey, how's so and so?" He can get you out. He can get you out. He's he, he's got the pitchers to get you out. They didn't say he throws ninety eight. So the difference is the way they're trained, and they're trained to do what they're doing: throw as hard as they can, go four innings, and they're getting paid oodles of money to do it. Good for them. Yeah. Uh, I'm on the player side in that regard. I, I played during an era when. The owners was like, well, hey, we're doing you a favor by giving you a spot on the team. So I'm glad they're making that kind of money, but they're not getting the most out of the talent they have because these guys are bigger, stronger, more talented than we were at 21 years old. I first noticed that when Andy Pettit came up with the Yankees because Andy and I, about the same size, same delivery, he could do so many, much more with the baseball at age 21 than I could do. And that's how the physical ability has advanced. But the mental approach and the the approach that those in charge take is just ridiculous the way they're handling pitching. And, you know, you're always good about taking care of youth baseball, grassroots baseball. And I think that's, that's kind of been a little bit of your mission in the podcast. What's the answer to this, I guess, starting with youth baseball? Well, I think we, we've mentioned Jim Colonel a couple times, and I've, I've endorsed uh, voluntarily his, uh, his method of, of coaching young pitchers and trying to teach them a proper kinetic motion and stop them from chasing velocity. But we also have to get the college coaches and the professional ranks to, uh, to stop forcing kids to try to throw harder than they can when they're youngsters, 10, 11, 12, 13 years old. And until that changes, uh, we're, we're going to continue to see the injuries because the body's not capable of, uh, unless there's that rare exception, the body is not capable. The arm, the, the body hasn't matured enough when you're 14 or 15. I mean, when I was 15 years old, I think it was 5'8", maybe 150 pounds. So if, if I had to try to throw 94 miles an hour then, you'd have never heard of me. And I, I think that's what we have to do is get to the youth uh, and, the, and the parents and the volunteer coaches and the college coaches and say, let's, let's start looking for pitchers instead of throwers. Uh, that's where it's got to start. I don't think we're going to change the mind of a lot of major league uh, general managers and coaches, they're going to go ahead and say, you know, we like this guy. Uh, we think he can give us 180 innings. And if he breaks down in three years, so be it. But if we want to uh, develop some some pitchers that have some longevity, both within the game and within a season and years, we have to start with our youngsters. Yeah. And by pitching, I mean, we, we talk a lot about this max velocity, getting away from that with young kids and actually pitching, work out of situations with men on base. Yeah. Emphasis. Yeah, in the minor leagues now, kids, you know, if you get a couple men on, they, they take you out of the game. You never learn to pitch out of a, 
a GM. I, I, I've told this many times, I'm sure, and some of the listeners have heard it maybe more times than they care to, but I always gave credit to Jack McKeon, my manager in 1958 in Missoula, uh, when I was 19, and it'd be a few men on late in the game. Uh, he'd run out to the mound, just kind of toss me the ball, spit a little tobacco juice, set my shoes, and say, well, kid, you got into it. Figure out a way to get out of it. Yeah. And, and eventually, you, if you wanted to stick around, you figured out a way to get out of it. And uh, our young pitchers today aren't getting that opportunity. I noticed it a lot with our with the grassroots in my first foray into the the grassroots baseball in these tournament settings with my two boys. And I noticed that it was loud and clear that pitchers, they were being piped on their velocity, hyped on who was, you know, who their pitching coaches were, um, all the stuff that we, we, we don't like. Um, but they never worked on holding runners and that's where we had a lot of success. I, I'm glad I didn't tap into what they were doing because we spent most of our time with our pitchers. As you said, let's throw strikes. Let's learn how to deal with runners on base and, uh, and, and really respect that 90 feet between each base. And I found it and it was exciting and sad all at the same time, because if we got a guy in first base, I'd see a catcher still on one knee, looking to the dugout for us, for something. The pitcher had no idea how to keep that runner close or, you know, vary their motion or vary their time to the plate. And so as soon as we got a runner on first base, once I realized it in two pitches, he was standing on third, even our slowest guys, because yeah. They weren't being taught this. And these were considered the elite teams with elite pitchers coming from elite, I mean, listed as elite prospects. And I was like, there's nothing elite about this situation at all. I was almost embarrassed stealing the bases. I said, this isn't baseball, I guess. <laughs> well, you know, along those lines, when when I broke in, uh, there was very little speed in the game. Louis Aparicio with the with the White Sox, Hall of Famer, uh, he, he, he stole some bases, but it was more of a, of a slugging game. And then uh, when speed came in the game, Oakland had Campy Campaneris and Bill North. Reggie could run pretty good as a young player in the National League. All of a sudden had, you know, Brock and Morgan and Wills. So Johnny Sane, uh, we, worked, uh, we worked on the slide step. I think I was the first pitcher to really use the slide step. So if you're in your normal set position and you're kind of standing up, uh, the first thing you do is you go onto that back leg, you load up. So what he did is he gradually got me to load up before I even started my motion. I had my hands over my left leg, and then I would just get the ball out of the glove and up in the throwing position so I could get it from, from uh, motion to mitt is what they timed you. I could get it there sometime in 0.9 seconds. Oh, wow. So, we didn't give up any stolen bases, but we, with speed coming into the game, we began, began to work on on holding men on. And uh, now I, I, that's nobody does that. You, I mean, nobody. I, I don't mean nobody personally does it. The game doesn't do that. Now they've made it even easier for for uh, stolen bases. They've gone up quite a bit last year with the new rules. So. Uh, there's not a lot a pitcher can do anymore. You can only throw over there a couple times. So they've taken that away. Shorten the distance too. And it's a whole bunch of things to benefit base running. You thought that we could take our cues from a, an international sport uh, to maybe have fewer arm injuries. You know what the cricket bowlers do? They they get a running start. Yeah. And when you look at our, our pitchers, um, 
you don't see a lot of them get over that front leg. You know, they're falling off to one step or the other. And the cricket bowlers get uh, similar to what an infielder, like a third baseman. He feels the ball. He takes a hop, step, and jump and throws to first, a hop and a step. Well, that's the way the cricket bowlers, they're the pitchers, and that's how they deliver the ball. Well, if we had cricket rules, we'd probably have a lot fewer injuries because players, instead of starting pitchers from that that position like they have a man on, like static motion, they'd have a little bit of a wind-up and a little bit of a motion to give them some momentum going toward home, and that's what the wind-up was designed to do. Yeah. You rarely see a quarterback with with, – the injuries like we see with pitchers, you rarely see a tennis player. I don't know as much about cricket, although that would be interesting to find out what their injuries are like with the throw. Well, theirs are more on the shoulder. There's a tremendous amount of stress on the shoulder. Yeah. They throw that ball into the ground. Yeah, quarterbacks, of course, Tom Brady and Drew Brees, there are probably more uh, in the offseason. They would go to see Tom House out in the West Coast. Uh, Tom House was uh, – famous for catching Henry Aaron's uh, record-breaking home run ball. But Tom was a big league pitcher and then uh, uh, was really got into the, the mechanics, the biomechanics of the pitching motion. And a lot of pitchers and quarterbacks went to him. I remember when he was coaching the Rangers and I saw their pitchers throwing a football. I thought, this is kind of goofy. But uh, the more I got to know Tom and talk about him, uh, throwing a football with a spiral is kind of the, the correct – uh, release you want as a pitcher. So you'll see some pitchers these days do that. But yeah, the quarterbacks actually went to see Tom. Yeah, I, I remember seeing that. We, we do that as well. I, I think if you can throw a spiral um, with a football, good good chance that your, your baseball throwing motion will be at least sound. I don't know how hard you throw, but I agree with that. Yeah. Tom, you, you had an idea about a, of a, an idea about a pitching tunnel. What, what is well, that? Well, I take this from Jim Colonel in that, you know, when you make your pivot, a lot of pitchers, they'll swing that leg, that lead leg. They swing it toward home plate instead of the good ones. When you see Fergie, Nolan Ryan, uh, Steve Carlton, that knee comes up almost into the stomach. And then the arm comes straight back and straight through. So your motion doesn't have width. You know, you don't want the arm to get way outside of your body. So I thought, well, if you had about a four-foot tunnel, it would force you uh, – to stride directly toward the target and to get your arm up and out of the glove. And the, the, the pitching motion would be more linear than rotational. And that's really what Johnny Sane helped me develop in the mid seventies. My motion was like a step and throw, almost like an infielder. And I was 30, 35 and 36 years old during those two years. Uh, and, and pitch 580 innings combined, and my arm never felt better. Huh. Yeah, I like that. It's, I mean, it keeps you – I think that's a problem with a lot of kids today because of the max velocity. They get so rotational with their motion because they think that's where the power comes from, and, and maybe it does, I don't know, but it takes their body all out yeah. of line. With well, your, your power comes from your legs, but you, you, don't, have to, you don't have to necessarily rotate to, to generate a lot of power from your legs. I mean, if you had just a little bit of a momentum in that windup, you would, you would use your lower body better and take a lot more stress off the arm. But today, a lot of these uh, motions that they start from a static position, uh, it's much more difficult, I think, to use your lower body doing that than if you had 
uh, a little bit of a kickstart, a little bit of a windup to uh, to get your motion started. Yeah, there's no windup today. You don't see that over the head. Uh, no. I mean, and I again, I agree with you too. That that certainly would give you momentum. It seems in a world that's crazed with velocity, you would think logically. Again, we're getting in trouble here by thinking logically that that would be something that they would naturally add that that little momentum swing. Um, you you had a you had a, an opinion on a a, a guy, I guess, or, or an analyst anyway. With Adam, is it Adam Wainwright? Oh yeah. Yeah, I'm living down in South Georgia, and in fact, I'm going to see Wayno Sunday night. There's a benefit here for Habitat for Humanity, and he's becoming a country western singer. Oh, wow. He's got his own little group. I heard him in, at Bush Stadium, and so, uh, but Adam is signed with Fox, and uh, a couple of years ago, when I, when I realized that I need to get out of the booth because I can't identify with the influence of science uh, over art, but I had said at the time, the, the television networks need to get a, a pitcher like Adam Wainwright, who his career starting, I think, in 2005. So he, he played when some of the non-science existed and, and it was still an art. And then he was under the influence of the analytics in the latter part of his career. So I think he will be able to speak to the pros and cons of both. So I, I'm, I'm eager to hear him. Uh, what he has to say in analyzing games, I I did kind of chuckle because I saw the comment where he said, I'm looking forward to the chess match between pitcher and catcher, pitcher and hitter. Well, I'll see him Sunday night and I'll tell him the chess match is out the window. There is no chess match. This is a match between the computers up in the press box. Yeah, They're going to tell you what to throw and when to throw it. I wish it did go back to the chess match days when, you know, a pitcher could do his own thinking. Well, maybe he'll bring that about in his, his broadcast, uh, you know, his disbelief as to where did, where did this go? What are we doing here? Yeah, I hope so. Bold. Well, what uh, final thoughts today? How do you want to leave our audience? It's a great show. We, I appreciate all the info you, you passed on. Well, I, I think let's uh, – I, I just wrote a little quotation down. I think let's uh, – Let's remember the Hall of Famers, the two from last year and, and the three this year, and what model citizens they are. And if I had to describe them, this little quote, uh, this little phrase, live well, live wisely, live humbly. No, it's perfect. And they all do that, and they're all great citizens on and off the field. So I'm, I'm, uh, I'm looking forward to celebrating with them this, uh, this summer. That'll be great. That uh, that humble is rare nowadays with, with yeah. today's self-promotion. I got asked a question on social media that I pulled out this morning about uh, the, the, a key attribute I, I, I would identify when I was looking for a leader and humility. Um, I felt when somebody has that humility, they're very, uh, they can smoothly step into that leadership role because they're naturally selfless, giving themselves to the betterment of everybody else. So I'm glad you, right. you ended it that way. Um, well, great show today, Jim. Appreciate it. Glad uh, all the guys made it, but Joe Maurer, you, you being a, a twin at heart, that he uh, he got in in his first ballot. Great lefty stroke. Loved him as a catcher. Multi-sport athlete audience, so uh, remember that when you're trying to specialize your child out there. And uh, for us, episode 422 in the books, make sure you follow Jaw Bats, RVG at checkout. You can use the same model Jeff Fry used to Hit his first hit in a fantasy game down at Red Sox camp. Tanner's using the M110 model, lefty and righty. Loves the distribution. Thank you to Sports Podcast Group and the Webbies for nominating us for Best Baseball Podcast Network. 
We appreciate you. We'll give you more on Millions, our newest marketing partner. They're uh, they're pushing us out there. They love what we're doing, so they're a big supporter. And this is the uh, the middle game of a triple header. Never hear about it. First AMBS, the Hall of Famer. Obviously, the Hall of Famer, Jim Cotton, will be finishing up with former Red Sox great Nomar Garcia-Pair in a minute here. So, Jim, thanks so much for a great show today. All right, Dave. I enjoyed it.